This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I am especially excited for this week's show. I got a chance to talk to Andrew Gillum, the man who came within 30,000 votes of becoming Florida's governor, who was a rising star in Democratic politics until he crashed in a tawdry and public way last March. If you follow politics, you probably remember some of that. It involved drugs, a male sex worker, and photos. And all of that was leaked to Twitter by Trump fan Candace Owens. If you don't follow politics, well, all of that is pretty easy to find. Today, Andrew is 14 months clean and sober. He's walked away from politics and embraced being of service in a different way. He wants to destigmatize addiction and mental health struggles as a person in a community, not necessarily leading it. He has a great podcast called, appropriately, Real Talk, and that's what I got on this show, too. Stay tuned for some frank discussion about sexuality, spirituality, hitting bottom, rising up, and what he thinks about another Florida politician who's going through his own sordid scandal, Matt Gates. One of my favorite conversations in a long time, Andrew Gillum, coming right up. Andrew, welcome yes. back to the show. Yes. Thank you for having me, of course. Um, it, this ain't Texas, <laughs> but I don't have any shoes on right now, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, yes, I talked to you, uh, gosh, now, probably like two years ago. Yeah, Things yeah. Things are real years. different for you now. That's Yes. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah, in some ways for all of us, but yes, for me particularly. I actually wanted to start kind of with today because... Yeah. You know, people who follow politics might think they know you. They yeah. might think they know your story, right? Yeah. And I think the thing about stories like yours is that is the only part people know is the like part that gets covered, right? Yeah. So I kind of want to start with who you are today. Yeah. Like, what do you want people to know <sighs> about you today? Well, today, and I appreciate the thoughtfulness of that question, and you are right, what people often tend to know about you is what gets covered. 
Um, they make up in their minds a whole bunch of things as a derivative of what they have seen covered um, as who you are. And some of it hits close to home and some of it is far off base. Um, but I am really happy to say that today I feel more in my skin than I have ever felt in my life. Um, I, I do what is in my pleasure. Um, the reason why you and I are talking today is because it is in my pleasure. It is, um, and, and some may hear that and, and misinterpret this as some sort of Epicurean mm-hmm. thought. Right. Like, uh, you know, and, and do what makes you feel, you know, whatever. But for me, it really is do the thing that allows me to be in my skin, do the thing that allows me to be at home and myself, because as I have gone back and traced a lot of where I have gone off track or off the rail or off the path or whatever, it's been when I have been in performance of something uh, that may be a part of me, but isn't at home with me. And I don't want to sound too like weird and esoteric and like, you know, crazy for folks, but I just, a lot of people think about Miami mm-hmm. and what happened in Miami as my downfall. And I have to admit uh, Miami was not my downfall. I was well on the way to that before Miami. Miami was my salvation. Mm. Now, admittedly, it was the, I would have preferred a quieter, <laughs> less sensationalized, <laughs> you know, less publicized. Maybe much no pictures. More, that just... no, maybe quiet in between, <laughs> just me, you know. Um, but in some ways, Anna, I have to tell you, it needed to be loud mm-hmm. in order to get my attention. Um, I'll never forget Tyler Perry calling me a few moments after Twitter exploded. He wanted to check on my well-being. And then he said, brother, I'm so sorry that this has happened, but you have no idea what God may have mm-hmm. been saving you from. And it immediately sort of started to frame for me everything that then flowed from it. And so the, the, the short of it is I am in my pleasure and I am as much in my body, in my seat and in my being as I have ever been. You just gave me chills. So in recovery in our rooms, we have this like standard format that people use to tell their story. And I think it would be a good place for us to begin. So people know it's a pretty classic arc, (laughs) what it was like, what happened and what it's like today. So I wonder if you could just take us through your recovery journey in in that format. And if I can ask a favor about the, what it was like, you don't have to start with adulthood. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think that, that our stories Because that's start, not where it begins, actually. Exactly. It, I think it, it our actually stories is not where start it begins. a long way, a long time before that. So uh, They start not only a long time before um, adulthood, they start a long time before our birth. Mm. I will also not forget this. And that was 
on Friday, the 13th of March, 2020, uh, my salvation uh, day, I got a call from Iyanla Vanzant, who told me, baby, just remember, <coughs> this ain't personal. This is ancestral. Mm. And what she was helping me to realize is that while I was in this moment of chaos and crisis and all of this, that there have been generations of trauma and harm that have gone unspoken to, undealt with, pushed under the carpet, under the rug that deserve a voice. And if I love and care about the three children that I'm raising today as much as I say so, it's my job to disrupt it. It's my job to wrestle with the intergenerational um, so that my children aren't aren't fighting that same battle. And I'll be more specific about it. Yeah, let's get started with the, um, what it was like generationally. Well, I will tell you, um, my father was an alcoholic growing up. His mother, an alcoholic. I kind of remember vaguely when we would take those trips and I would visit her and she would be in her nightgown all day. And she would have, she was a ferocious reader, books everywhere, but would always have this clear glass, no ice. I didn't know what it was, but it was her medicine, Mm -hmm. also known as vodka. (laughs) And it would move her through the day. Um, Angry, mad, nothing ever seemed pleasing. Um, And of course she, she, you know, um, got on a road to recovery and stayed on that road all the way through her death. And then there's my dad, Charles Gillum, now deceased. He actually died after my um, 2018 race for governor, Mm. Um, was a soldier and stuck it out with us. We didn't even know how ill he was. My daddy was on street corners holding signs. Mm. And in February of 20. Uh, 19, I was a fellow at Harvard teaching um, um, in the Kennedy School and lecturing, mentoring, whatever, in the Kennedy School and got a call. Hey, dad's been hospitalized. It's not looking good. You know, we think you should come home. Um, And by the time I got there, when he was, when he first went in, was responsive and communicative. And when I got there, was not his eyes were barely open and and um you know that's that's a story for another day but i remember far too vividly growing up with my dad stumbling in the house drunk with him laying physical hands on my mother as one of seven children in the household all boys one girl my baby sister she's the last of the seven I know that my mom and dad were dealing with what it meant him as a construction worker and her as a bus driver, part-time presser and a dry cleaner, that there were always fights about bills. There was always fights about who was contributing what and not doing enough. And I remember my dad, you know, with these big red, you know, they weren't Red Bulls, but they were this blue and silver can. It was like the king version of it. And he would just throw them back, throw them back, throw them back. And at, at some point in him throwing them back, he became really fun. 
And he would toss us up and play, you know, play with us. And I kind of like love that about him. And then at some other point, he would become really mean and really angry, mostly toward my mother, but short tempered with us. And I didn't all the way know what it was at that age, but I would come to learn that obviously it was alcoholism and his siblings tried to intervene and he went away to, you know, um, uh, rehab. He lived in, you know, group homes. He did all of that. And undoubtedly he come out and eventually it would catch back up with him. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Anna, to be honest with you, I actually had no relationship with alcohol when I could legally drink. I just, I just avoided it. I mean, I remember watching daddy. I remember grandma. I remember all the harm that it caused our family. And I didn't want anything to do with it. And I actually didn't drink in college, Mm. like really at all. Part of that had to do with the fact that I was a student leader. I was student body president. I was on the board of trustees. I was always, you know, trying to be the model and, you know, exhibit good behavior. And so I didn't do it. I didn't start drinking and drinking, you know, really socially until after I got elected. Now I got elected when I was 23. I was going to say, yeah, like you've been yeah. elected office for a real long time. It was, so. it was a minute, right? Um, and all the way through my elected, you know, office life, I kind of, my relationship with alcohol was very event related. Mm-hmm. It was when I had a weekend and we went to a football game. I was always the guy who never knew the bottom. Mm. So I was never like a comfortable drinker. I would always, at that time, I was always going to the edge. Mm. Somebody would lecture me afterwards. They would tell me how my behavior was bad and and a bad example. And this is that and a third. But then on a regular basis, I wasn't drinking through the week. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't drink it until there was a special occasion. Like I said, most people start my downward story at Miami. And for me, it began when I decided after losing the race, not grieving it, never Mm. really having a good cry. I never had a good cry after the loss, as close as it was, as wrenching as it was. Did not have a good cry about the race until I got to rehab, Mm. which was unbelievable to me that I had not grieved it in a real way. And so after the race, I started drinking at home Mm. by myself and at night usually, and it wasn't beer. It was always liquor. Whiskey um, was, was, was my choice, but I would drink anything that was, that was liquor for the most part. And then because my schedule was so hectic, I had signed up to do Harvard. I had signed up to be a cable news commentator. I had signed up to build a plan to try to rescue Florida, even after losing the race by 30,000 votes, you know, 0.4%, you know, just a year, you know, less than a year before I had lunged into this thing. And I said yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll be on the board. Sure, I'll give a speech. Sure, because I, you know, when you are empty, when you feel useless, Because to be honest, it wasn't just the loss for governor. I had been elected since I was 23. And if I were to be real honest, I had been elected since 1998. Senate president, Mm -hmm. president of, you know, judicial and rules, march organizer and leader, led the march on, you know, uh, to Governor, uh, Governor Jeb Bush and sat in his office 
in the press, giving interviews, got elected as a student to the city council as the youngest elected in the city's history, served on that, got elected mayor, served on that. I was mayor running for governor of the state of Florida. I thought I would be governor of the state of Florida. And on the day that I lost, I also went out of office as governor, as, as mayor of, of, of Tallahassee, Florida. And everything that had shaped my identity was gone. Mm. And I didn't, I had not figured a constructive way to reckon with the fact that the only way in which I knew how to contribute, the only way I knew how to change society for the better was through legislating. And that was now gone. And so the loss wasn't just the race. The loss was a part of how I identified. And it just, it went from drinking at night in hotel rooms. It went from going to the Delta Lounge and asking the bartender, not only for my drink, but I needed to take another drink back to my seatmate, of which there was no seatmate. It was just me. But the lounge was big enough I could get away with it. So when I went back for the second time to get the fourth drink with no chaser, then it was, you know, you know, it was the fourth drink for me, but it was only my second drink to the people who were watching me. And then it became (laughs) in the morning time, getting up and putting liquor in the coffee mug because nobody would question what was in the mug. It was morning time. And of course, I'm a coffee drinker, but it was no coffee in there. It was whiskey. And so it just, because I could do my job, I could still perform, even though I did some of it intoxicated. I felt I was functional and in control, Mm. but I was driving drunk. I was getting back to my hotel room with no clue how I got there. I was drinking at night and drinking when I woke up in the morning and doing my job, still performing at a high level. People complimenting me for whatever. They were probably just complimenting me because I was just there, that I showed up, not that I had done anything special. And so it, it was a very fast relationship. And I would not have, like I said, it, 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 all the while, my marriage is falling apart at home. I'm dealing with parts of my sexual identity that I had not shared publicly. I am grieving the loss of a race. Beyond that, grieving the loss of an identity and purpose and meaning. Um, and it all just culminated mm-hmm. in what was, frankly, not my worst experience. <laughs> It just happened to be <laughs> the one that there's a know, record of. Yeah. There's, it just happened to be the one that there's a record of. Mm. It happens to be the one that I actually have no memory of. It, w- it happened to be the one that wasn't planned that I accidented into that then changed everything. I, I want to jump in and just explain if people are wondering why I'm laughing because yeah. <laughs> It's okay. Yeah, in AA meetings, like (laughs) this is the this is the comedy portion of the meeting. Yes, it's a laughter of recognition. You know, like almost everything you described is something that I have done. Like literally, like right down to the Delta Lounge. Yes, that lounge boy, it'll get you. (laughs) It'll get you. Free drinks. Yep, and also uh, when you fly one of the classes that has free drinks, you know. I am a diamond medallion yeah. at Delta. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it well. 
Um, there was a there was one flight that I, you know, it was I don't remember it, but apparently it was I really embarrassed myself. So um, I don't want to remember it, but uh, I remember it. I remember mine because it resulted in me shitting my pants. <laughs> yeah, that that happens for us. You know, it really does. Like, that's actually if people don't know, like I. Yep. That happens because you get so beyond your ability to control yourself. It's really uncontrollable. Like when talk, we talk about our lives became, going out of control, that yep. it's pretty literal, you know? Yep. But I want to ask you a question about the story you just told. I, well, we're going to get to the what happened and what it's like now. I just happened to have been thinking today about workaholism. Mm. And how I think, I know a lot of us that that's kind of the secondary addiction, you know? Yes, it is. And it, yes, it hearing is. you talk about like how important elected office was to you. And I have obviously no doubt that you want to be, you're of service to the world and you want to help change the world. But also, it, it's funny how working or work, especially work that other people see as purposeful. Yes. Can do some of the same things for us that alcohol and drugs do. Absolutely. <laughs> I, and, and that's probably why I didn't do much of it while in public service. I really didn't. I didn't do much of it. I, like I said, they were celebration moments and like truly celebration moments. But I knew I knew there was an issue and I knew my relationship was tough with it because Obviously, I saw the family thing, but I always thought that was a choice. Mm. I always thought if my dad could have been stronger up until the point that I ended up in the situation, because then you learn about the brain science of it. And then you learn about the genetics of it all. Right. So I, I didn't I didn't credit the power of the ancestry, the lineage lineage with the with the power that it had. I just said. I was weak. I wasn't strong mm. enough to deal with it. I wasn't, you know, you know, all those things that we tell ourselves when we fall to addiction. And the truth is, is like, there's the hijacked brain, um, um, you know, that you learn about that, you know, that, that really walks you through the brain science of this stuff, which is an education that not only recovering alcoholics and addicts need, it's the brain science that our family members need. It's the people who are supposedly our cheerleaders and in our corner need because they just think, you know, okay, you had a week, you know, you, you, if you could just be stronger and make a better choice. And the other thing that I realized for me is it was also about, um, it was also about tapping out and the salve, mm. um, the balm. You've heard of the healing balm, mm -hmm. but in truth, it was not a balm at all. It was simply an escape. Mm. And what I would come to now later learn about it is um, that when I am at home in myself, I don't really have a desire to escape anywhere. Mm -hmm. I am all encompassing. I am the space that I occupy. I, I, and, and my, this is where it runs into conflict. And I know I don't want to jump ahead, and I, I, but this is where my recovery runs into conflict with some of the AA 
principles, values, not, not so much the values, um, but doing the work comes into conflict. Traditions, right? That, that, that's, that, that, that works. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I had to, write a, I had to write, a, write a goodbye letter to alcohol. And I put so much energy into making alcohol my nemesis. It was the object of my rejection. I had, it started to encompass so much of my mind, space. I know me. The thing that I tell myself I can't do is exactly, or somebody tells me I can't do, is exactly the thing that I then want to chase. And like, oh, I can do it. I mean, I showed up at rehab thinking I could still drink afterwards. I showed up at rehab thinking that, oh, I could become a social drinker. I'll just, you know, I'll just make the change. I showed up at rehab and I had the most wasteful, they didn't ultimately become wasteful, but the most wasteful first two weeks because I was struggling with admitting I was powerless. I was like, powerless to what? I mean, as you know, it's the first step, you know, that we've got to acknowledge. I was like, oh, no, no, there's something I'm power. I, I, if I assert myself and prepare myself mm-hmm. and girt, you know, myself up for whatever the thing is, then I can, yeah. And, you know, especially for those of us who face some kind of societal obstacle. Oh, yeah. The powerlessness piece is <sighs> sometimes like extra hard to hear and hard it's to get our really brains around that it you. doesn't mean that I have to give in. That's not what powerlessness yeah. means. It means yes. I don't have control over myself when that's I right. put chemicals in my body. That's right. That is, and that's, that is true. There is no amount of liberation theology I can apply to alcohol. There it is. <laughs> there it will, is. That will make me be able to control it. You know? Um, well, I would tell you, this is my, my healer who I work with, who is, who has saved my life. One of the people who has saved my life, who I meet with every week. Mm-hmm. I would not miss an appointment. Um, she broke the, the tradition and I wasn't supposed to be talking to her while I was in rehab. I was supposed to only be dealing with my therapist there. And, um, we broke those rules because I was very, very vulnerable and mm-hmm. dealing with a lot. It wasn't just the, alcohol. it was a whole, sh- whole boatload of shit. And she said, Andrew, you have to welcome alcohol into the theater, welcome it into the room, give it a seat in the room, acknowledge that it is there. Um, and you know what? If it is in your pleasure to have a drink, Andrew, have a drink. If it is in your pleasure to go and smoke a blunt, go smoke a blunt. If it's in your pleasure, you know, she sort of went through these things and she says, but I'm willing to bet that as you come home into yourself, you are not going to want to leave that place. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to have every memory of every experience that you have in that place, good, bad, or in between, when you are at home and yourself. And the work that we had, that we did for you know the first six months of our time together, and we we were still enveloping, is that whole coming home within you and recognizing that you don't have to be anything to anybody. That you are enough right where you are, who you are, and to like believe it and to believe it and to love yourself and to give yourself grace and to say, I'm worthy. And, and like to reinforce that with some real stuff. There's a whole body of work that we've been doing with that. And she said, I'm willing to bet that you're not going to want to numb out. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why I said I've been sort of in two worlds here in recovery is that while I'm up to step four, I'm also at the same time 
which is deadly. I know. Yeah. People that people that watching, we both, you know, um, Andrew and I both made it like a really horrified face because step four is the personal inventory. <laughs> Lord, have a little mercy. I'm working through. Well, you can't see that, but I mean, I'm yeah. Like don't working, show it yeah. to me. Gosh. No, no, I know, I know, I know. I just wanted you to know. It's yeah. like it's like right. it's it's crazy work. Right. But but it it has really helped me because, and I shared this eventually while I was in rehab. I just said I can't make alcohol the object of my rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it would monopolize too much of my space. So I did with with what, what my healer said, I welcome it into the room. It has a seat in the room, mm-hmm. but as of today, I am 14 months and a few days sober, um, abstinent, and I am looking forward to being that way for the rest of my life. I don't even want to take a risk. I don't want to take a risk. This is to the powerlessness thing. I don't even want to take the chance. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I can or cannot know what the bottom is to a cup but I don't want to find out. It ain't worth it. We have to jump in for some ads. We will be right back. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Defund Fear. Following the worldwide protests against racist police violence and calls to defund, reform, or dismantle the police, people are searching for a new definition of safety. In his groundbreaking book, Defund Fear, community leader and lawyer Zach Norris lays out a radical way to shift the conversation about public safety away from police, prisons, and punishment and towards community-based support systems. On sale now, Defund Fear weaves together Zach's decades of experience as a community organizer with real-life stories from people on the front line of the movement to reimagine what safety means. Defund Fear is a blueprint for how we can humanize rather than criminalize each other and build the kind of justice that holds people accountable while still holding them in community. Michelle Alexander calls Zach Norris one of the most promising leaders and thinkers of our time, and Brian Stevenson says that Defund Fear is an enormously important contribution in the effort to advance human rights in this country. Defund Fear by Zach Norris is published by Beacon Press and is available wherever books are sold. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? For me, sometimes it's other people. Now, we're all getting ready to go back into the world, but sometimes all I can think about is how other people are a chore and socializing is hard and how I'm going to have to wear real pants. And I know this isn't a helpful attitude. So I'm talking to someone about it. Maybe you need to talk to someone. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get prompt and thoughtful responses. You can also schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all of this without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so it's easy and free of charge to change counselors if it's not working. The service is available worldwide. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available if you need it. There are experts in a broad range of issues you may not have access to in your local area. You can find a licensed professional counselor who specializes in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, or trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily to their site, 
And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Allbirds. Warmer weather is approaching and people are starting to feel more hopeful about the rest of the year. And I kind of find people scary, but I am really excited to be outdoors just because I want to be, not because it's necessarily safer. I started running during the pandemic because it felt like it was the only thing I could do. And now I want to do it. And I especially want to do it because I get to run in all birds, tree runners. The tree runner is made from sustainable, natural materials that feel light on your feet and are better for the planet. The tree runner is breathable, machine washable, and made from responsibly sourced eucalyptus tree fiber. They have a clean and versatile design that means they will work with any outfit. They're not just for working out. The tree runner is carbon neutral thanks to sustainable practices like using natural materials and purchasing carbon offsets. This spring, keep things light and breezy with the Allbirds Tree Runner. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. You know, for what it's worth, um, as like a kind of nerd about 12-step, I don't think what you're talking about is necessarily outside what we're what what we talk about in the rooms. And what you said actually really crystallizes what you said about inviting alcohol into the theater or into the room really crystallizes a thought I've been been having for a while now, which is that anything in our lives that we put a lot of energy into is going to, is going to oppose us. If it's something we want to get rid of and we just put all this energy into getting rid of it, it just makes it bigger, bigger. And also the same thing happens if you ignore it. If you completely ignore it, some, it gets, you know, that's the whole, your disease doing pushups in the parking lot while you're in the meeting. Hello. Right. Hello. And with anything that you feel like you want to get out of your life, I compare it to house guests. In order to ask it to leave, you have to acknowledge (laughs) that it is there. (laughs) You can't just, if if an unwelcome house guest comes and you just don't even acknowledge Uh, that the person's living there, can't ask them to leave. You know, uh, and if also, if you just fight with that person, they're yeah. not going to leave. If you're like, you know what? I think, I think we're done here. You know, yeah. I think we might yeah. be done here. And yeah. 
that person, that thing, that thought may come back. Yeah. You know, like that, that's how I think about my cravings and my alcoholism mm. is like that, that's going to be a visitor to me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I have to acknowledge it. I have to yep. be like, hi, hi, yep. craving shit. Yep. You know, yep. I see you. <laughs> yep. I didn't expect you right now, but that's right. Have a seat. We'll have a little chat. That's catch right. Up. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then, you know, if you could, you know, the door, you know, you know where the yep. exit is. Yep, 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 yep. You know where exit is. <laughs> Cause you know, we're not doing this. All right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You no longer serve me. Mm-hmm. It's a you terrible no longer, ex. That's what it is. Yeah, it's like a really a, a terrible ex partner, right? Yeah. That used to do, we used to love and, and it did the things for us. Wow. I could really go down the road with this metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I, I could believe that one <laughs> and I could join you in it, but you know, I'm working on my marriage right now. <laughs> you know, I think we actually kind of did the, what it was like, what happened and what it's like today already. Like, I think you covered all of that. So I want to ask, I do want to ask a question. Um, since you bring up your marriage, that just reminds me that you did also come out as bisexual Yeah. during all of this. Yes. And I know from, from reading about you that you knew you were bisexual pretty early in life, right? Um, high school was probably, yeah. Early ish, I guess. Yeah. You know? And that you came out to people, some people, like in your 20s, mm-hmm. I want to say. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I'm just curious. Yeah. Compared to being an addict or alcoholic, which was the harder thing to acknowledge to yourself? Addiction. Yeah. Addiction. Um, I, I, don't lo- I, don't, I don't enjoy the idea of being powerless to something. My politics on the sexuality, I, like I was already, my, I've got a brother who's gay, who's right above me. Um, he was the one I kept modeling myself next to, like just to sort of get a temperature of like, okay, mm-hmm. what he's telling me doesn't really jive with kind of what I'm feeling. And there were not a lot of models. In fact, any I could think of who were reflecting bisexuality, reflecting, man, I'm attracted to women. I'm attracted to men. I have a stronger pull, you know, at this stage of my life here. But I also think, you know, that's interesting. And, you know, that kind of thing. And never trying anything, frankly, until my senior year, I think, uh, junior year. College? Oh. Um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like not giving it a whirl. <laughs> not really breathing into it um, 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 in a real way. And so the bisexuality thing was something that I knew existed. I wanted to share it with whoever my life partner would be. I felt mm-hmm. like, okay, this is how I can make sense of this. I have the capacity to love whoever I choose to. And, but I can't disadvantage that person to not have the knowledge that mm-hmm. I had that capacity. And so before I got married, before I proposed, I shared it with the woman who I fell in love with. And 
um, I knew that by sharing that she could make the choice to say, mm-hmm. I can, I don't know what this is. I don't know. It's a pit stop, but nah, not for me. Um, and that's not what she did. She wanted to know more. I wanted to know more. And so we saw someone um, d- deeply um, in, in, in the space, in the LGBTQ space, who worked with the both of us, pulling back the layers and talking about it. Um, but the reason why it didn't, at least at the time of marriage, occur to us to say so publicly was it was sort of like you made a choice here. Mm-hmm. You, you've now decided where you are. So, so you've got, first of all, Katie Hill, me and others would agree that the B and the LGBTQ is the largest of the group without a doubt. And yet it's the but silent one too. And yet it's the silent one. And yet it's the one that it's hard. It's kind of hardest to get a conversation around. Cause, hardest. Because people sometimes think, and I don't want to interrupt you, but I think this is, this is Please. important. People Please. think of it as like, oh, then you're both. Like it's a, you're it's both like you're or a mix. you're just you're in a, waiting. You're in purgatory right, right, and you're right. waiting to become lesbian or gay. And you and that it's not they don't really, I think, understand that it's like it is its own thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Its own thing. Its own thing. It's its and own that, identity. And that, and that men who 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 are bisexual in marry women or women who are bisexual in marry men, automatically they're heterosexual. They're heterosexual presenting. And so no one, like who comes out and says, oh, I'm married, uh, I'm a guy, I married a woman and now I'm I'm bisexual. No one makes that claim. Mm -hmm. You only make that claim when you marry someone of the same gender. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole erasure of bisexuality in society. And by the way, that erasure exists both in the gay, the the LGBT, the, the gay and lesbian community as much as it does or at least it feels, I mean, the wrath I got from all sides, it was just mm-hmm. sort of like, whoa, I don't have a home anywhere mm-hmm. because I'm rejected here as being someone who doesn't want to fully reckon with themselves and embrace that they are gay. By the way, if all I wanted was to be with a man, I would have married one. If all I wanted was to be with a, a woman for the rest of my life, I would have made that decision and I did. And like any other human being, and I try to say this to my straight guy friends who are like, oh man, but what about when you're attracted to a guy or what about when you're, I said, what about when you're attracted to other other girl? Like we talk about all the time on our guys trips. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you go out and you jump their bones? Or maybe you do go out and you jump their bones and you got to reckon with that decision as well, but don't make me an alien because it happens to be same gender. Mm-hmm. You're doing the exact same thing. You're, you're looking at that woman in a way in which you should not be mm-hmm. when you're a married man to another woman, but you want to make me the alien because I have the capacity to do that with someone of the same gender. And so, you know, just trying to have that conversation in a way that doesn't get to the tawdry. Everybody, mm-hmm. well, you take it or you give it. How often you all are open marriage? Are you, you know, it's like I, people, they want to talk about the, it is just and like. That is not something we ask heterosexuals, I will point out. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> of course. 
course not. Or they just assume my wife and I are freaks. And so it's like, hey, if y'all ever want to get together and we do this, you know, and by the way, and I use freak, I use freak really not as a pejorative. I was just sort of just freaky. And maybe we are freak. Maybe I we understand that in some communities, that is like a, just a thing that you say. Like it is just a, yeah. a thing to describe. Uh, something maybe that you like, but that's a little wild, you know? That is a little outside the normal. And I just think we have to push the limits of everything that we have been fed around Mm -hmm. what the normal Mm -hmm. relationship is. Because if you boil it down to its simplest form, it likely has some economic implication. It likely in some way ties back to some form of commerce or power and control. And so- I mean, we have to interrogate those systems. I am a believer that sexuality is on a spectrum. And I believe everyone has the capacity to end up anywhere on that spectrum. Some folks to the further ends of it. Others concentrated toward the middle. Like I said, within the LGBTQ community, that concentrated middle is the majority of us. But it's a silent majority and it's a majority that doesn't want to be persecuted and they don't want to be outed and they don't want their neighbors and friends and fellow church and synagogue members to look at them strange and differently. But it's the real thing. And guess what? Consenting, loving and consenting adults can define the relationships of their own choosing. Mm -hmm. But it takes two to make that choice. I am glad that you started talking about systemic inequality. Mm -hmm. Because in the recovery community, people who might, who are not in it may not know this, uh, there is a parallel conversation about systemic oppression and white supremacy yeah. Uh, yeah. happening. You know, the, yeah. the same way it's happening in a lot of more visible communities. Yep. Uh, and I think some people might know that this, that George Floyd is the person that started this conversation, not just because he's the person that was on that video, but because yeah. he was in recovery. Yep. He actually went to a treatment center in Minneapolis that specializes in addressing the needs of black men in recovery. And I have opinions on some of this. I have opinions on many things, but of course that is not why we are here. I'm curious what your experience and thoughts are on that? You know, we have a long road to hoe here. Um, so the old timers in the AA, you know, space, um, if it's anything other than alcohol, mm-hmm. then we don't want to see you. We don't want to talk to you. We don't, I mean, it, it is so crazy to me that we are not dealing with the fact that addiction is addiction is addiction. And whether it is a substance or alcohol, which is also a substance in the most deadly of them all, um, there is some, there is great commonality mm-hmm. in the community. And I really, so I, I'm sorry, I didn't want to not get on the direct question, but I wanted to just say there's a lot of updating that has to happen to this race, not being this this singular part of it, mm-hmm. but a very important part of it. First of all, in my rehab center, in my classes of, you know, I don't know, 20 of us, it would range um, our morning and our evening group meetings. 
maybe had 14 to 16 of us in our group. There were only two black folk, me and one other. At one point, at our highest, there were three. Mm-hmm. And everyone else was white, mostly white male. And um, it was very, very, the disconnects were just really jolting to me. Even in shared common experiences, the disconnects and the judgments were really jolting. Um, and I think we have to deal, I mean, and of course, all this goes back to the systemic issues we have with access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Who gets it and who doesn't? Whose employer pays for their folks to take family and medical leave to go deal with these kinds of crises? One of my friends who's, you know, one of my best friends whose family owns a funeral home said, bro, you are so blessed. Mm-hmm. Most of us in our community don't get to deal with our demons, our regrets, our change moments until we're on our deathbed making confession. Mm-hmm. If we do it then. So just, you know, just being in a place where we can, you know, where we can reckon, you know, with that. I hate that it took the death of George Floyd to bring to the centerfold, you know, centerfold the inequality, um, um, the absence of voice, the absence of space, the absence of advocacy mm-hmm. for the black and brown community within this, within this space, within this community. Most people won't know whether it has been absent or whether it's been presence, thus the anonymous, you know, part of it. Um, but it is a real, real need mm-hmm. for real integration, real access, how we, how we seed the culture of recovery within these communities that are so hard as hit. And they're not just, they're not just black for black state. They're black, large, you know, black and brown, largely because of the poverty. Mm-hmm. It is the income piece of this piece that, you know, that is, that is often the nexus. Yep. And the, and it's the irony of course, is that, um, there are many ways to recover. I want to say that very clearly, but uh, the rooms of, of, of 12 step programs are one way and they are free, you know, they are. And I'll just point out for people who don't know the history, like the, the, the systemic stumbling block for AA in particular has been that it was founded by rich white guys. Oh, white professional men. Rich white guys. (laughs) Yes. And they had some very um, radical ideas about equality, I think, on their own. Like, in, if you yeah. look at the literature, they themselves were personally, for the time, pretty woke. Persecuted. And persecuted themselves. So they had actually, they felt for, yeah, you know, but the context. They felt for people who were ostracized in corporate boardrooms and then, you know, all, yeah. in professional and, and, spaces. And they did some <laughs> reaching out to the, you know the poor, but I think it's hard to escape your context, you know? For sure. And so they were blind to a lot of um, the things, like if you are a group that is traditionally, you do not promote yourself, then how do you make it into those communities where there's not a foothold already? That's right. And how do you talk about it? Hell, I almost walked out of rehab through some of our discussions. Yeah. Uh, and some of this, some of this, and some of, and I, I referred to this earlier and I'll say it again, and some of the language and, and, and initial understandings of, of recovery in general and 12 steps sometimes in particular for people who face some kind of discrimination outside the rooms can feel real bad. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, spoken down to, um, patronized, um, 
but I would, t- in spite of all of that, because I, I actually spent a lot of time, too much time being a critic. Mm-hmm. And it was a coping method, obviously, for me, because if I was critiquing the program, then I wasn't critiquing me. Um, so I was writing the, you know, how after each session you write in these notes about how you were impacted or <laughs> what did you learn from that? And I was writing like dissertations on these cards and my therapist pulled me to this, you know, he says, you know, we've been going over some of your comments in morning meeting. I didn't know they all got together yeah. and talked about these damn cards. And, you know, he's just, you know, I, I just want to, he says, some of what you, you know, what you have to say could all be legitimate. And there are things we can do better here. And this is in the third. Um, but I just want to let you know that if you just opened yourself up to receive what is meant for you and then leave the rest, you know, you might have a little bit of an experience of, you know, I don't know, of growth. You may learn a little bit of something. You may hear something that feels like something you're going through. And it really was a flip of the switch. Because I was like, oh, I love that. Take what you can use and leave the rest. And it changed, it shifted my whole experience for the, for the rest of my time there was everything may not hit me that mm-hmm. directly. Um, and I may be a critic of somebody's approach at this is at the third, but why don't I work on me? Let's do, let's do me. And it made the biggest difference in the world. Um, uh, but I was trying to escape it. Of course, I was trying to come up with every reason under the sun, moon and stars as to why I was not supposed to be in that room. Mm-hmm. Why I, it wasn't me. Like there was some strange thing that happened in the world and it wasn't, it wasn't me. And again, like some of that stuff is real legitimate and yeah. needs to be worked on in that community. Yeah. Um, I'll pull back the curtain a little and just say that um, in uh, 12-step rooms, you can find meetings for just women. Yes. You can find I've done meetings international meetings. <laughs> for uh, just LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I, I am not suggesting that there be meetings just for people of color, but it is kind of an interesting blank Why space. Not? I'm just saying yeah, not? I'm not, I would yeah. like that suggestion to come from someone who is. I understand your point. I hear you. <laughs> not I me. hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. But it yeah, is, ally. It, it, it's an interesting <laughs> lacuna, let's say. Yeah. Right. In acknowledging yeah. the kinds of communities that need specific sorts of peers. Everyone yeah. needs to see themselves reflected. Yeah see themselves reflected. And that's just the, that's just the part of it. Um, um, I noticed a lot of times in our rooms that the folks of color often, um, often um, pull back from Mm -hmm. exchange because the oxygen was taken up by most of the white men Mm -hmm. in the room. And I, I, of course, my progressive training kicks in and I'm like, um, we need some establish some ground rules here. Uh, first of all, step forward, step back. Mm-hmm. If you're stepping up too much, just step back, you know, let others, you know, sort of, you know, it, it interjects on and so forth. But, 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 but I don't think that, I don't think there is anything wrong with saying that there may need to be some affinity groups that deal very closely with some of the traumas especially when you talk about the intergenerational nature of some of this, when you get into the hijacked brain and the shared trauma that exists there, 
that it might help some folks to know that you're not just the fucked up one. Mm-hmm. That there's been some fucked up stuff that's been happening all throughout the line. And we say, oh, that's cousin such and such and such. Or, you know, grandma drinking her juice or, you know, you know that medicine or, you know, th- those kinds of things that we just sort of make a part of our society, our community, our culture that need to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so there is a need. I just wanted to validate. I know you didn't want to be the one making the suggestion, but you made a brilliant suggestion. And I just want to validate that there's, there's good reason for it. Last set of ads back in a minute. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Parade. Parade is a brand that loves helping you to express yourself. They make creative basic clothing in a variety of sizes from extra small to 3XL. Cami Telez launched it 18 months ago with the goal of keeping prices low and the items fun. Parade underwear starts at $8 and now you can buy their bralettes as well. What kind of underwear is your style? Boy shorts, thongs, briefs? Parade has all the styles you want in over 30 fun, expressive colors. And at the heart of the brand is sustainability, inclusivity, ethical manufacturing, and social justice. Almost 100% of their fabrics are produced using certified non-toxic recycled content, and recently they launched their newest fabric, Universal. It's the world's first carbon-neutral, edgeless underwear. In addition, Parade's packaging is 100% biodegradable and breaks down within 300 days inside a composting environment. Since its launch, Parade has donated to Planned Parenthood of Greater New York on an ongoing basis and has given proudly to Feeding America and the Loveland Foundation. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off orders of $40 or more with code WFLT. Go to yourparade.com slash WFLT to get the creative basics you want and celebrate who you are today. With Friends Like These is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. Try meals that are ready in 20 minutes or less, recipes with lightning-fast prep, and quick breakfasts and lunches perfect for your busy schedule. HelloFresh offers over 25 recipes to choose from each week, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers and extra special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. HelloFresh has a wide variety of easy, delicious options for all three meals, plus snacks and special treats in between. Now, I'm cooking for one a fair amount now, which means I could be wasting a lot of food if I was shopping at the grocery store. HelloFresh gives me just the ingredients I need in just the amounts I need. And if it's just me, I get delicious leftovers. And I'm not stuck deciding what I want to eat, and I don't get stuck cooking the same thing over and over because I can't decide. My choices are just narrow enough I'm not overwhelmed and just different enough I never get bored. Go to HelloFresh.com slash WithFriends12 and use code WithFriends12 for 12 free meals, including shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash WithFriends12 and use code WithFriends12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. You've probably upgraded a few things around the house after being stuck inside. It makes sense. Now it's time to turn your yard into a paradise with fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. 
No more waiting in lines, messy cars, and digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, adding some color to your yard, or some more houseplants, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. Plant shopping is hard. How do you know what's going to work for you? What's available in your area? How do you know it won't die right when you get home? Fast growing trees means you're never guessing about what will work for you. I have a bunch of houseplants from them and they're all healthy and happy months after I got them. There is a better way to buy trees, shrubs, and plants for your home and yard. Fastgrowingtrees.com. Planting season is here. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, they have the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, which means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now through June 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends to get 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends. I am very, very curious as to whether your recovery journey has had an impact on the way you think about politics. Totally. Yeah. One, I have had to learn what it means to not be in the arena Mm -hmm. and the way that I had grown accustomed to, which was to be able to legislate, pass laws, sign ordinances, all that stuff, govern. Um, and it, and I've got to give it up for my healer, uh, for her help in this. She, this is how we got there. I was in crises one night while in rehab and we had a session and you're so angst. What is it? And I just said, I just feel like I'm never going to be able to pull it back together to put it back together. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And she said, my love, my love. The reason it was broken is because it is not meant to be put back together the way that it was. You are birthing something new. The earth and your energetic imprints have collided to produce something new in you. And that's why you'll never be able to put it back together the way that it was. And I was like, oh my God, you have just reached into me. Like, you mean everything we built, like, I'm not supposed to reassemble that? No. Your job now is to, is to do a new work, a new thing. Um, and for me, it, it was very hard first coming out because we had the presidential election going on. I had been raising money and building a team and a framework in Florida to do this robust voter registration project, mm-hmm. all of which I walked, had to walk away from March of 20, you know, 2020. And I was a backseater and no seater at all, to be quite frank, because I had to do the work of me. And she said, you are learning what it means to not be in the doing you are now in the being. You're learning what it means to be in the being. And what does it mean to be in the being? She says, it means that the world of politics is changing 
what people want, what they desire is a new thing. And you can't go back, you know, while you want to be in the passing laws and on the front lines and on the this and on the that, there's another role here for you to discover. There's something for you to discover. That's where we want to spend our time in birthing the seed that has been put in you as a healed healer and the outgrowth of that. And so I no longer see politics as the all-exclusive game on the road to change. That was validated by the summer of reckoning Mm -hmm. of 2020 with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery um, and what flowed from that, the movement that flowed from that, that the change was actually happening in the street and not in the corridors of power. The swift justice that was coming was being bought, ushered in by the people, not politicians. Mm. Folks were leading and they were following. And maybe it's always been that way, but it was on full display that the power of the people is greater than the people in power. It It was on full display. And so, yes, my relationship with politics has changed. I no longer feel like you have to be in the actual seat of government in order to achieve the change. And there was a part of me that always gave lip service to that, but I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I've internalized that more now than I ever have before. And I honestly believe that our road to salvation, our road to disrupting, in fact, dismantling, leveling these systems of oppression. And yes, they are systems. I'm less concerned about the individual racist and much more concerned about the white supremacist system that's been built that allows them to believe Mm -hmm. and to have their supremacy reinforced by these systems. I I wanna level it all and build the beloved community from the ground up. And I think the only way that happens is not in Washington and quite frankly, not at even city halls. Mm-hmm. I think it's happening in city blocks. And that's going to be the, you know, that's going to be the real, ch- you know, that's going to be the real change. That's going to be the lasting and systemic change in my opinion. You mentioned something there that is another kind of aspect of politics that has changed a little for me in recovery, which is this idea of not, hating the racist, um, but hating the system. Oh, yeah. And for me, recovery has really made that distinction important. You know, like, I've, I've been, I, well, part of me says I've grown both more and less judgmental in recovery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it forces it. Because I'm more judgmental it. of the systems and I feel more urgently than ever about the systems, but I'm less judgmental about the people caught. Totally. In those totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Anna. It, it is, um, and boy, if we could, if more of us could get there. So much of us think that the fight is against the individual racist or the individual racist act. And I would encourage people to read Dr. Ibram Kendi's mm. book, all of his books, Stamped. Um, but the one um, that I was particularly focused on is How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he talks about the fact that, you know, you, you, look, nobody is colorblind. Nobody is just a critic. You can't be a, a non-racist observer that to be anti-racist requires anti-racist acts mm-hmm. and act, it requires a movement, an activity, a something, and not just a, a set of words. And I think we ought to work at that level, at the individual level. But I think if, if systems are still designed 
to keep certain people out and allow others in or to perpetuate this family having, retaining, growing wealth and yours and intergenerational poverty, then I don't care how racist any individual neighbor (laughs) is. I really don't. I want that goddamn system destroyed. I want that dismantled. And so, yes, people with racist ideas, they still may operate in those systems until we purge that and purge that behavior and activities, at least change the rules around who gets loans mm-hmm. and where. Change the rules around who gets health care and when. Mm-hmm. Change the rules around who gets access to housing and how. Right? Don't, don't, you know, God bless the race. We all have the ability for redemption. In recovery, we can make a choice every single day to be better. Mm-hmm. And we can do that at the individual level. But if we aren't changing these systems that reinforce those attitudes, we don't have a chance in hell. As I said earlier, it's hard to escape your context. And racists have a context too, you know? Absolutely. And that actually, I'm, I don't know if this is going to be a hard question or not but it it may put to the test this idea that we've both endorsed. Okay. Do you have any sympathy for Matt Gates? I do. Mm. I do. Everybody knows that Matt Gates attacked me vociferously, unmercilessly about every mistake I've made and didn't make, uh, made up stuff, right? Mm to go back and now see that all the stuff he wanted to accuse me of, he was actually in the process of doing, should tell us a whole bunch about people projecting. Mm-hmm. We always talk about those people who crow the loudest or, or, or thou uh, us protest too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tried to quiet that, you know, that joy that wants to speak. I was like, oh God, look at karma. You are, oof, boy, is it coming around. And there is a, my healer has taught me to do this as well, which is, and she taught me to do it first with myself. I was being so judgmental, so critical of me, so self-hating. And I would tell her a story about such and such and such. And she says, I want you to tell me that story again, but tell it in the third person as if you are narrating for Mm -hmm. what Andrew was doing. And I was like, what the hell is she talking about? And so then as I start to narrate, I'm bringing in other information. Andrew did such and such because he was hurt. And acted out as hurt in this way by this, 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 that, and a third. And her counseling of me through how to tell a more compassionate story than the one that I've already convinced myself of about that person, about myself, about whomever, was a really important lesson. And so I ran into real conflict, real conflict with a loved one. Mm. And I'm telling her, I'm reading him the riot, you know, to her. And then she says, Andrew, I want you to know this has nothing to do with you. I know that it came to you. I know that it was. Tell that story again, knowing what you know about his father, his upbringing, the traumatic experience that you and I both know about that person. Mm -hmm. 
because I had told her about this before. In fact, my wife had told her about this as well. And I start to retell the story and all the anger I had toward this person turned into compassion. And then um, I felt bad. And then all I wanted to do was to pray for his healing. Mm. And finally, I'll just say on this, my healer also reminds me very often that when I'm reacting in rage because I've been pierced or triggered is the common word that folks use to make sure that the person who is showing up in that moment is Andrew Gillum, the adult and not Andrew Gillum, the wounded child, because the wounded child is acting out their earliest memory of when they felt that way. They're not even present in the moment. They've gone back to the time that they got rejected and called a faggot or a this or a that or treated this way, or the last person picked on the team because they weren't very athletic, or that you're playing out that. And so the aggression that you have in that moment that you're directing toward that person has everything to do with the wounded child. And so just be clear that when you are showing up in those moments and recognize that the wounded child will show up, this is not about the fact that you want to get to a place where you no longer have a wounded child. This is about getting to the place where your recovery time is quicker, mm-hmm. where you're not sitting in that place forever, but that you're on recovery, you correct yourself and you get back at it. As if that weren't uplifting enough, it's time for With Adorables Like These. Now, crooked media stands will know exactly who I'm talking about here. I will describe the adorable if you're not someone who follows the hosts on Twitter. He's fluffy, brown-eyed, a golden doodle who loves playing fetch. And he's the companion animal of former Obama speechwriter and Pod Save America host, John Favreau. If you need pictures, he has his own Instagram, at Leo underscore the underscore dude, spelled D-O-O-D. But pictures are only half the story. Let's hear more about Leo. First, who are you and what do you do? I'm John Favreau. I'm uh, a co-host of Pod Save America and uh, co-founder of Crooked Media. How long have you been companions with your adorable and where did you get him? Let's see. It has now been since December of 2014. We got Leo from Palmdale, California, just about an hour north of Los Angeles. So his name is Leo. His name is Leo. Is there a story behind the name? So the story behind the name was we got him. Uh, so his birthday's in August. So he's a Leo. And he's, he's blonde and looks like a little lion. So we kind of thought Leo was a perfect name for him. Now, all animals are emotional support animals. Mm-hmm. How has your adorable supported you? Oh my God. I didn't, I never thought I would need an emotional support animal until Leo. Every time I'm feeling sad, anxious, worried, nervous, anything, uh, he's a cuddler. So he will cuddle with me. I am um, a very nervous flyer, super anxious on planes. And the times that I've brought Leo on the plane with me, 
because uh, he's very small. So he can sort of like fit on my lap or, and um, it's actually made me less anxious on a plane. So he's a genuine emotional support animal. Yeah, he's like, a genuine emotional support, which again, <laughs> I didn't plan on that. And I didn't think I knew that. But I think once we were going across the country, we don't have him on planes often, but once we were going across the country and we needed to bring him. Um, and so he sat, he sat on my lap the whole time. And my wife, Emily noticed, she looked over and she's like, this is a pretty turbulent flight and you're, you're doing okay. And I was like, yeah, it's Leo. <laughs> what is the most you've gone out of your way? For your adorable or the biggest way you spoil him? Oh my God. I mean, we treat him, we now have a, a real live nine month old child, um, Charlie, but before Charlie, Emily and I treat Leo and we still do treat him like our child. Like we go everywhere with him. I think one of the ways we treat him like a child, especially is we, now when we travel, my parents live uh, about an hour North of us. So we don't bring him. We usually leave him with my parents and we check in on him. Like, I don't know, 20 times a day. We demand pictures of him. Um, we get on FaceTime with my parents and like talk to him in, uh, in our Leo voice. It's like a real, yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. We're, we're pretty obsessed. What cause would your adorable support? What cause would Leo support? Um, the, the cause of um, tennis balls for all. <laughs> he's, he's An obscure most, interest the, group, but He is there. the most obsessed dog with balls that I've ever seen of any dog ever. You can throw the ball and he will, he probably will go like a good 10 hours without stopping uh, if you just keep throwing the ball. Like there is no time he will stop. And, and, and he brings the ball right to your feet, drops it. Even if you say, no, we're all done. He continues to bring it back. Wants, he just wants to play fetch all day long. That's it. That's his, that's his reason for being. Can you please do the voice of your adorable? I can't. There's no way. There's no way I'll do that voice. You said that you have one. <laughs> That'll be for, for anyone who visits us. <laughs> You'll be able to hear it. And even like a little preview. Hi, I'm Leo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. I guess you're putting dignity before adorable. That's fine. <laughs> and that is it for the show. I want to thank Andrew Gillum for his bold vulnerability and his joyful attitude. His podcast is, again, Real Talk. Also, thanks to John Favreau. You might want to give his podcast a shot. It's called Pod Save America. This show is also a production of Crooked Media. Our senior producer is Allison Herrera. Jordan Waller also produces. Izzy Margulies is our booker. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick got to go home this week. And Wally discovered the desert. I just want to add, things are changing a lot right now. Many things for the better. But it is okay if that doesn't feel good all the time. Change is hard. Take care of yourselves. 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.